0: Our next speaker uh, needs no uh, introduction uh, to most, uh, uh, but to a new
1: person, and uh, maybe so. Um,
0: several Saudi uh, Arabian ambassadors ago, His uh, uh, Royal Highness uh, Prince uh, Turkey, Ben Faisal bin Abdulaziz bin the Rahman, al Saud, came to the podium once at a CSIS event. Where Tony, uh, uh, Dr. Anthony Portisman uh, was a an featured speaker. <laughs> he opened his remarks by saying, uh, since he'd been in Washington, that was maybe three, four months, uh, that he had done nothing all, all day long, every day, but tried to catch up on what Dr. Portisman had written
2: uh, only days before. Uh, that was mandatory uh, 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 reading for the uh,
0: analysis that uh, he's been able to share with so many others. I've had the good fortune to travel to the region uh, three times, Dr. Kortisman. Uh, We went to Iraq uh, right after, not long after the end of the uh, Iran-Iraq War, August 20th, uh, 1988. And went to the uh, football-sized stadiums, where all of the uh, Iraqi-covered,
2: good uh, covered uh, weaponry from the many um, countries, mostly
0: then still Cold War countries, had supplied Iraq. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, maybe he has. Uh, we've been to Bahrain together uh, with regard to the uh, U.S. Uh, you know, southern Command. Forward deployed naval presence, uh, 10, uh, 10 11,000 uh, naval personnel there. We've been to Saudi Arabia uh, together prior to, not uh, very long prior to, the U.S. Uh, invasion and occupation of Iraq, and um, we've been elsewhere. So without further ado, I want to introduce the Ollie Burke uh, Chairholder at, at Center for Strategic and International studies. Uh, He was on the staff as National Security Advisor of the late John McCain, um, among other uh, positions, and has focused on the strategic balance uh, forces, uh, American, Arab, uh, Israeli, Turkish, Iranian, and other in the Middle East for not years, but decades. And Homeland Security, uh, he would have been the first specialist uh, my knowledge uh, who uh, foresaw uh, the national uh, interest being wrapped around that. Uh, so all of you go through airports and see a TSA person. Um, That's part of it. And uh, Tony Anthony Gortisman was there at the at the creation at the foundation. Dr. Gortisman. Thank you very much,
3: John. uh I don't usually make predictions in giving these presentations. I can make one. I'll never live up to that introduction. (laughs) You
2: know,
3: quite honestly, it says decisions somewhere in the title of this meeting. What decisions? I mean, we have tweets. Where I come from, tweets are not decisions. Strategy, I think, our most recent ex-Secretary of Defense, described Washington quite correctly as a strategy-free zone. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Because
3: concepts are not a strategy. Goals are not a strategy. You need to have a plan, you need to have a program, and you need to have resources. And you need to define them and put them in the context of why this is needed and why it will work. And we have not done that. I think, really since years ago uh, when we actually had plans, programs and budgets in the Department of Defense. In my professional life, I can't remember one such document coming out of the State Department. And this is not a casual issue, because what is happening here is not a matter of ISIS. It is a matter of what Syria is going to become and how it suits and interfaces with broader U.S. strategic interests. And there is no way that you can operate in Syria without affecting Iraq, without affecting Israel, without affecting Jordan, without affecting the Gulf. And if you ask yourself, where have we ever defined a U.S. strategy for the Gulf or the Middle East in recent terms, in a meaningful definition, strategy, I would be really amazed to hear the sight of that strategy. And Syria's case, I think, is somewhat unique. First, defeating ISIS on an enduring level. We've just seen a report come out from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Annual Threat Assessment. Nowhere in that is there any indication that we are going to achieve an enduring defeat. I believe on Friday or Monday, I can't forget which, I just come back from outside the US, there is a new report by the lead Inspector General of the Office of the Secretary of Defense. If you look through that and you look at the map of ISIS influence in Syria and in Iraq, and you look at the numbers involved, There is no promise, as yet, of an enduring defeat. Breaking up the caliphate, yes. Estimates within the intelligence community are that you may have something like 30,000 fighters still in Syria and Iraq, and you can't separate the two in the West. So, What are you really going to do? If you leave prematurely, you can pretty well be sure that one way or another, the Kurds either have to fight or they have to compromise. But more generally, the focus on ISIS does not tell you about the stability of Syria. The World Bank, UN, estimates about 400,000 dead in the course of the fight. That estimate goes back to the beginning of last year. If you look at the report that came out from the lead inspector general, We're talking about a country with about 19.4 million people still left in the country. You've got 13 million in need, 5.4 million refugees, in the immediate countries around Syria, and you have something like 13 million people in need. Talking about a convoy going in on humanitarian terms is fine, but when you actually look at the UNHCR reporting, there are vast areas in Syria where we have no data, much less active humanitarian aid programs. And I would advise you strongly to drill down. I looked at the CIA estimate today, the latest one which is, in theory, revised. Uh, 82.5% poverty. And Most of you who are familiar with international data know how low a poverty level is. 50% unemployment, 30% of the real GDP you had in 2010. How do they get these numbers? Well, it is not through science. Let me say that we simply don't have the ability to do much more than guessing. But when you talk about humanitarian aid, we do not have a clear or reliable estimate of what it would take to fill the voids. When you talk about recovery, that's more or less nonsense. Nations do not recover from this level of war. They restructure and they create new patterns of economic activity. You've already had not only the refugees, but something on the order now of between 6.2 million and 7.5 million ID many of whom have been displaced more than once. They're not going back. Nobody's going back to Syria in 2010. If you look at the potential growth that could have occurred if this war didn't take place, you've lost somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of the GDP growth you might have had. What is the level of stability? What's going to be the fight in it? Which is now dominated by essentially a subordinate group <coughs> following the spin-off of Al Qaeda. What is going to be the outcome in dealing with the Turks, which have their own very separate goals on the earth from the goals that any of us seem to have, in spite of the fact that NATO still has Turkey? I think what do you do about a country? with such a young population, where something like two-thirds of the casualties, probably more, that have occurred during the fighting have occurred in the West, not the East, and where if you are a Sunni Arab, how do you compromise with the Assad regime? And what on earth is this marvelous negotiating effort going to be? That somehow produces any kind of order or structure out of this. Let me also note there are an awful lot of experts here on various parts of the world. Can any of you remember one case in terms of post Civil War violence on this level where there had been efficient, quick reconstruction? where you had so many ethnic, sectarian, and regional conflicts, tensions, and differences. And you have a country which the World Bank's governance indicators rank as one of the worst governed countries in the world, in the bottom ten in this point in time. You have Transparency International ranking it as one of the most corrupt regimes in the world, and the practical history of reconstruction, instruction, unless you control virtually every time, is the history of thievery and waste and the disappearance of money. Something well reported by the Special Inspector General for Iraq and for Afghanistan. How do we deal with that? Without honestly addressing those issues, enduring violence, all of the causes of terrorism remaining, the desperate human needs of Syrians, and the need for some structure that can lead to reconstruction and actual development in a meaningful way, what you are citing is an almost perfect recipe for enduring regional instability. And here's the other problem. I only have a few minutes and I have two expert colleagues to follow, so let me remind you, this is going to have a massive impact on Iraq. And here the again, the Director of the National Intelligence has warned very specifically about the linkage. To me, anyone who analyzes Syria and ISIS in isolation from Iraq is doing the United States serious harm. They are too closely linked. How does this actually impact on Iraq? If you have followed at all the role of Iranian forces in Iraq and Syria, the linkage to the Hezbollah and the rest, you realize you can't separate or somehow magically exclude. Relations with Turkey, I think I would find myself repeating that everybody knows. Russia. What many people do not understand is you are switching S-300s, the most modern air defense system that they normally export, to Syrian control. Russia has a major base and a large flow of arms. What many people also don't understand is Russia has a massive arms transfer program to Iraq and its own advisory group, and you will find no plan for the U.S. to roll with or without our staying in Syria. Strategic partners, what happens to Jordan, Israel, and Lebanon, Egypt to some degree. Well, it is a minor issue. And a lot of you visit the Gulf. I want to ask for a show of hands. But how many of you have not seen a very sharp, steady deterioration in confidence? On the part of the Gulf states in our willingness to stay, actual American ability to maintain military forces, confidence in our role and competence. And here I am not just talking about this administration. Let's go from about 2005 onwards. What strategy restores that confidence? Maybe will get something out of the 2020 budget submission. It is supposed to explain, but was not explained in the so strategy documents issued last year, how the strategy might be implemented. I'll bet each of you a dollar, if you won't find it, but I'm a pessimist. And the mere fact we haven't had a meaningful strategy document since Harold Brown, ceased to be Secretary of Defense, is not an indication could happen in the future. But in all honesty, we cannot, as a country, afford to go on ignoring the economic dimension, ignoring the corruption and incompetence of governments, ignoring the deep divisions of our strategic partners, particularly in the government, and, excuse me, John, issuing reassuring conceptual bullshit.
0: <laughs> you see why Vince Turkey has said that uh, reading Dr. Bordesman's uh, works is uh, uh, mandatory if one uh, wants to uh, come at these issues from a strategic perspective. And what some who followed his work for a long time acknowledge is his, his uh, mastering technical details, of measurement of an artillery piece of barrel, uh, the trajectory of, of a particular shell fired at uh, one's uh, adversary, or uh, the velocity, if not also the viscosity, of the dynamics of uh, military equipment and tactics on the ground. Thank you, Tony. Uh, we shift now to um, uh, Colonel David DeRoche,
2: who's a senior international uh, fellow at the National Council on
0: US-Arab Relations. He's also an associate professor at the National Defense uh, University uh, in its uh, Bureau of Near Eastern South Asian Affairs. Uh, uh, more. Must be aware of more than a frequent visit to, to the area. Um, he must have uh, a record on stay in the region, miles, uh, and in terms of the repetition and, and practice and practice and practice uh, to try to uh, get on top of some of these uh, complex, vexing uh, uh, issues. Uh, he's also a Joseph J. Malone uh, Fellow. Uh, That's one of our uh, programs for uh, study visits to the Arab countries, 12 Arab countries have participated with us there. And uh, we choose them carefully uh, with regard to uh, what they've done, what they're doing, and the prospects of their making a defining difference. Uh, David DeRoche is one of those individuals who we took to Syria more on Syria, and that program uh, shortly.
1: Thank you, Dr. Anthony, for that gracious introduction, although I have to say that um, when Dr. Cordesman said conceptual bullshit, that's usually my introduction. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, I want to point out I'm going to use
1: PowerPoint slides because I spent most of my career in the Department of Defense and I have been rendered incapable of speaking to more than three people without them. And uh, I should tell you also that uh, I will speak on the record uh, because I think you know if you don't have commercial interests, uh, then Chatham House rules for handy wastes. But um, uh, I will have to point out, though, that my opinions are only my own and don't reflect any views of the United States government. Um, so um, I'm, I'm in a little bit of a bind here. My parents were acquaintances of the comedian Joey Bishop. I don't know if any of you are <laughs> old or, 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 or. And um, they were at a large party, and he told a story about speaking at one of the Danny Thomas St. Jude things. And the first comedian to go out was Danny Thomas and apparently did such a fantastic job there were like five great comedians sitting around, and nobody wanted to go on after Danny Thomas, and Joey Bishop said, I'll do it. And so we walked out onto the stage, and the audience was still laughing from what Danny Thomas said. And then he said, what he said goes for me, too. I said, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I will resist that temptation, however, because damn it, I put time into these slides. And I started out this morning uh, from uh, uh, Charleston, West Virginia. And so uh, I suffered, and you're going to suffer, too. Um, <laughs> If you follow me on Twitter, my Twitter handle is there, the Inspector General report that uh, Dr. Corson referred to. I tweeted that out a few days ago, and I generally tweet all these government reports, UN reports, think tank things. Some of you are nodding. I mean, there, there literally is a woman at McGill University who um, did her honors thesis, and all of her sources were from on social media. Feed. Um, so, there we have it. I'm going to review a little bit of the, um, how we got to where we got in Syria, and I trace it back to this moment when John Kerry found himself uh, tied in a logical pretzel, urging a strike against Bashar al-Assad's chemical weapons capability, but in order to placate people within his own party and Republicans who were concerned over war powers, said, well, we're going to do it, but, and the quote is, it's going to be very, very, very small that we're going to do, unbelievably small. To which my response as a former military officer is, why don't we make it really small and not do anything at all? And of course, the response from that was uh, sc- scathing. Particularly, uh, we've already mentioned the late Senator McCain. Um, and uh, obviously, I, I've only, i acknowledge not from with Dr. Korsman, I've only had two conversations with Senator McCain in his life. In both of those, I could tell that, but for his awareness of the gravity expected of the United States Senator, he would have directed me to commit an act that was morally questionable and physically impossible. Um, and he basically said that a Syria strike would be unbelievably small, that is unbelievably unhelpful. And uh, it's true that the, uh, under the Obama administration, Syria policy became uh, frozen. There was no move forward until the rise of Daesh. We basically said, yes, Bashar al-Assad's a bad guy. We thought that he was on the way out, the inevitable waves of history that he would be swept away. We overestimated uh, his determination and ruthlessness in clinging to power. So what happened? What happened was the rise of Daesh in the summer of 2014, and it's worth revisiting what happened. First, you had the utter collapse of the Iraqi government forces in Mosul, uh, and the rapid failure of Mosul that was led by uh, this collapse was amazing. The only uh, modern parallel I can find is the uh, Japanese advance through Burma and Singapore in 1941 um, 42. It was amazing. It was made possible by the fact that under Nurya Maliki, the Iraqi security forces had been hollowed out and, and in effect, turned into an armed wing of the Shi'a Dawa Party. And what you had was uh, a group for, for primarily drawn from one ethnic group operating in terrain that was populated by another ethnic group that wanted to see them gone. And so when the bullets started flying, they looked around and said, my gosh, this is not good. The officers fled and the soldiers were massacred. Then, of course, the caliphate declared um, from the pulpit of the Grand Mosque in Mosul. Uh, The first U.S. intervention against this was a very limited one. It was to protect the Yazidis and also to staunch the uh, advance of the Daesh forces in the direction of Erbil, which has been our de facto operating base safe haven Rock Iraq in Iraq uh, pretty much uh, since 2003 uh, and, and actually before. Um, it's important to note here that that intervention was extremely limited in geographical scope and at the time the big story out of Iraq was that these Yazidis were being enslaved, massacred, where they were forced to live out on Mount Sinjar in the open. And so what you saw was a very, very small um, air striking that was not really coordinated with any general advance by Iraqi security forces,
2: which is, uh, we have some aviators here, but airstrikes in isolation are
1: generally um, not that effective. So what you saw was uh, a thing that had some military impact, but again, it was mostly done Uh, To show seriousness and to define limits, uh, you know, force Daesh to perhaps channel their efforts in another direction. Then, on August 19th, James Foley was beheaded. His murder was followed by the murders of others, and that is what led to the military action against ISIS in earnest. In earnest, it was not a reaction to the predations of Daesh, the declaration of the caliphate, the movement on Baghdad that was really a reaction to American uh, forces. And there's a number of reasons for that. I think one of them is the fact that the authorization for the use of military force, which is still our legal basis for this, required some sort of attack on Americans, not on Iraqi forces. Uh, this, of course, is the uh, uh, Emirati female uh, F-16 pilot who took part in those things. We quickly, as was noted earlier, built an impressive coalition. This is a rough chart of the coalition working group showing the plethora of nations who were involved. Across across functional areas dealing with things like stabilization and communications, not just fighting, uh, and as was noted by Mr. Guardiosi, um, uh, they're they're bringing in their 80th member of the coalition today. So that is, um, in diplomatic terms, a successful effort. Uh, the question is, um, successful towards what? Well, if you look on the ground, you see that the situation is is pretty pretty impressive. This is. Uh, rather old, this is actually as of a year ago, and everything that is in green and red was once controlled by Daesh. Uh, And basically, the darker green um, was held by them after 2015, and now, um, as of a year ago, only the red was held, and of course, the red patch in the upper northeast portion of Syria and the red patch along the border with Lebanon, those are now uh, no longer in existence, What you basically have is if you look at there at Abu Kamal, right where Jordan and, sort uh, sorry, right where Iraq is uh, on the lower border, um, you really don't even have that. What you have is sort of a crescent here on the uh, east bank of the Euphrates that they control. And there's a, a pocket uh, just south of that, Palmyra, for those of us who are uh, using archaic language. Now, does this mean they are defeated? Well, in military terms, perhaps yes, but speaking and, and and many of you I know from other events, and, and I've already, a year ago, I flashed pictures of Carl Klausowitz and spoke as a War College professor about what his strategy is, but I think we can agree that um, what we're seeing here is a moment that is a cause for strategic reflection, and that is that if you have American forces, or indeed any outside forces in an area where they are not from the same culture, ethnic group, religion, language, there comes a tipping point where you have to weigh the effectiveness of having forces there conducting military action vice the alienation effect from having foreigners in here. And as ISIS becomes less of a conventional military threat and more of an insurgency threat, um, arguably that's the time where you say, look, having American forces here probably brings more people over to the other side and we probably have a diminishing return of where we have to put so much resources into their force protection the amount we get from that is, is overwhelming. It'd probably be better to have them across the border and get a reveal where something is nasty then they come over take care of it and put back. So, there is actually a point of contemplation there, a point of decision making in terms of counterinsurgency doctrine. Um, I, I know it's not fashionable to speak favorably of the administration's policies in circles, but um, this is what the situation on the ground tells me. And uh, it's hard for us to believe it because we're brought up from birth to believe that. Uh, regardless of what the problem is, you know, the solution is an American, we put a man on the moon, we cure polio, we can do anything. Um, it probably is a good decision to uh, scale back the presence in Syria um, based on this. Now people are saying, well, yes, ISIS still has 30,000 fighters, ISIS is still capable. The uh, IG report said that absent a DOD effort on the ground, uh, ISIS can reconstitute itself within six months. All that is admitted by the administration in the documents. But the solution to that not, is not necessarily a persistent presence of American forces on so, You can deal with all this in other terms. And you can deal with this in an indirect route as classic counterinsurgency thinking goes. And if you're into that kind of stuff, find uh, me a drink and I'll talk to you off on about it. Um, now, Russia. What does Russia want to do? I chose this picture for a number of reasons. First off, um, look at the ribbons that they're wearing. Does anybody recognize these ribbons? St. George's. Yeah, St. George's. Exactly. Um, these are the ribbons that were produced to commemorate the victory over fascism in World War II. And people forget when ISIS first became a big issue, the Russians proposed a revitalization in conjunction with the anniversary of World War II, of the completion of World War II. And they said, we need to revive this grand coalition just as we came together to defeat fascism. We can come together to defeat uh Rampant, uh, uh, militant, uh, Islamic fundamentalism, Islamist fundamentalism. Um, And they directly market back to that. And when the United States said, no, but what we will do is have a video conference to coordinate de-conflict airstrikes so we don't accidentally kill each other. uh, And that conference on the US side was led by Alyssa Slotkin, who was then the acting Assistant Secretary of Defense and is now a freshman member of Congress from Michigan. the Russian side actually filmed the American feed coming in and then broadcast it their own, their own, under their own domestic things. And you see the Americans are along with us who revised the Grand Coalition. So the Russian aim uh, was to basically say there needs to be a Grand Coalition against that and bygones be bygones, let's not talk about the Assad government because we're all fighting the same continent and you put that aside. Um, what I do find is that the Russian role in a future Syria is I think perhaps overstated. Um, I, I believe that they do have a stake in making sure, particularly after the uh, untimely and ghastly death of Muammar Gaddafi, who of course deserved it, but um, that they could not afford to have a second one of their clients die so horribly. Uh, and having achieved his success, uh, they really are looking at a limited footprint where they're happy with you know, the base of Hamena, the naval base of TARDIS. And, uh, influence. But I think they also recognize, um, and I, I will add to Dr. Cortesman's uh, statistics on corruption and things. There was, uh, two years ago, a, a Russian general quoted in a Russian military general, uh, journal where he said that fully 40% of the Syrian armed forces are engaged in nothing more than shaking down the population, manning static checkpoints and distorting So, So the indications go, well, the Russians uh, have lent or sold <coughs> or pledged Billions of dollars to Syria, and they know they're not going to get that money. So that argues for a limited percentage. What the Russians do do is, and they're very good at historically, is do they focus on winning the war or winning the peace? Well, this is World War II, and at the end of the war, um, they were in place here, here, and pretty much like this, and they managed to take all of this. And of course, this became uh, the satellite states of the Soviet Union, Um, the Warsaw Pact, eventually, except for Yugoslavia. Different, slightly different, but arguably what you saw there, and people forget. When World War II ended, Russia, the Soviet Union, um, was the only one of the victors that actually acquired territory in the peace settlement. So there's the Kaliningrad Oblast, which is located right around here, which was historically the city of Konigsberg. It's always been German. Now it is Russian to this day, and uh, Northern Ireland, uh, Northern Islands of uh, Japan, which remain um, still militarized zones and are. Have not been subject to a peace treaty. So there is a past thing for this uh, grand coalition with the Soviets stroke Russians that leads to uh, military cessation, but then uh, an aggressive action to win the peace afterwards. When we look at Syria, we see that a civil war map, this is from 2015. What you have here is area controlled by the Syrian Democratic Forces, area controlled by the anti-Assad opposition, area controlled by Assad, and of course what Assad has done is wipe these guys out, wipe these guys out, and push them in the Hitler still up this area here, and area that had been ISIS controlled is now uh, Syrian Democratic Forces or regime forces um, uh, moved out there. So the question is who's going to win the peace? The United States and its coalition partners, having focused all of its efforts on ISIS, Russia, Iran, and um, uh, the Assad regime, having focused its efforts here uh, in what the French call Le Syrie Util, leaving Le Cilie on the Util. War. <laughs> um, and so you have this situation now, where what you can see is basically Syrian Democratic forces, the uh, uh, Vistigil ISIS presence here, some anti-Assad opposition here and here, and of course, the rest of the territory. So, um, what is Trump's strategery for this? Well, here's what he has said. as a war college. <laughs> First off, he is not into transformative or sweeping uh, policy changes. Um, he is definitely not into nation building, and of course the animus to nation building goes back to the Clinton administration, although it's one of those things that nobody wants to do it, but everybody wants up to do it. Uh, he does want to limit American
2: presence abroad, and there is some justification of this recall for example, the large
1: American presence in Saudi Arabia being a cited causes belli for uh, the initial rise of Al-Qaeda, and certainly a factor in some of the popular support for Al-Qaeda. Um, in Americans abroad, we, we tend to scare people because we're loud. He wants to push regional partners to solve regional problems. And I would argue that this is much more popular in the American heartland than it is within the Washington think tank community. And he wants to keep his word and contrast with Obama, particularly on the red line of taking action still. And, and I think that, you um, uh, know, like I went to college in New York uh, uh, in the 1980s, and uh, one of the uh, weird requirements of my college was that I, I, was, I had to read the front page of the New York Times every day. That, that actually was a requirement. And uh, so we saw a lot of Donald Trump, and it is very important in, in my, based on my 30 years of observation the man, that when he says something, you can go all the way back to the conclusion of the Walden Ice Rink in Central Park. It's very important for him to say, I have done this, and I have done this by the time I do it, regardless of the policy implications. Uh, so, what complicates the vector? Well, the first problem is, is everybody recognizes this man in the middle who is protected
2: by rifles uniforms, and other vehicles that your tax dollars pay for. This is Qasem
1: Soleimani, the commander of the force of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. The fact that Iran is actually placed, positioned, for a persistent ground presence, a major role in the government, and the establishment of armed security forces in both
2: Iraq and Syria that are outside the control of the government. And that are beyond our command and control,
1: and that are armed in some instances with our own weapons, that bugs us. And uh, I hate to say it, sometimes, uh, as in the case of the Falkland Islands, it is not unknown for two men, two bald men, to fight over a comb if they think the other guy will benefit from having that comb. I don't know what led me to think that. <laughs> um, so the fact there may be nothing in Syria on Util, but I'll be damned want to let the Revolutionary Guard spike the ball in the end zone and do the happy hands. Now, there are serious, serious security considerations there. So that complicates it. This idea to leave, the question is, who's going to carry the fight to this? Are we going to abandon the battle of the Revolutionary Guard? The second, um, this is the only image I can find of, this is the most forlorn-looking Kurdish fighter uh, I could see. There is a strong and persistent narrative that is not based entirely uh, out of full plot. That the United States has repeatedly abandoned the Kurds and will continue to abandon the Kurds, and that we don't want to do this again. I note that when you speak of the Kurds in the Washington policy community, there's an unspoken preface to the statement: "The Kurds." It's usually our friends, the Kurds, and um, uh, and it's true they have been abandoned at various times. Although when you dive deeper into this, uh, whenever people speak to me of the Kurds, I always say, "What Kurds?" Uh, because as I occurs has told me if you have five Kurds in a room you have seven opinions and then finally putin and bashar al-assad we do not want to see him spike the ball in the end zone and the animus towards russia and russia's presence even though in my analysis it is um uh, overstated here that really iran is more of a concern more of a threat and that uh, the iranian russian coordination is actually just Not even a marriage of convenience, it's more a tryst of convenience that will soon dissipate and be regretted uh, once we have departed from the battlefield. So you have three bad outcomes that we have to do. Now, the question is, does preventing bad outcomes constitute a strategy? It does not. (laughs) It does not. Just as Dr. Kortisman noted, most U.S. government documents that call themselves a strategy are basically statements of intents or goals. It is even worse to have statements of what you don't want to have happen and say that is our strategy is to avoid all of these. So it could be a management technique that is effective in the short term, but it's not a strategy. And on that basis, I will leave you and welcome your most difficult questions.
0: Thank you, Roche. You see why he's... Uh National Council of International Affairs Fellow, a privilege uh, to have him as such, and we've been with him enormously. Our last speaker is the first International Affairs Fellow we've ever had there, which makes him uh, the longest uh, standing International Affairs Fellow. He's that. Plus, he's also an adjunct fellow at the uh, teacher, Professor Mellon, at American University School of International Service. He was the in-country director of all of the National Council on U.S.-Arab relations, high school scholars in Arabic, Islamic studies in Syria, and university professors in the arts, humanities, and social sciences uh, to Syria. Colonel Faroche being one of the latter. There are 2,968 universities in America. It took us a long time to research that in a book. Uh, we have someone like uh, Dr. Samo, uh, like uh, Colonel Garoche, in 800 of those 2,080 uh, uh, universities in America. Uh, Dr. Samo commanded all of our programs in Syria. We're talking about more than 200 Americans, roughly uh, half university professors, and half, if you can believe it, high school students from 36 cities across the united states that are arms and branches of the national council now lastly dr Samo is the deputy archbishop of the syrian orthodox church in syria which is the first church in christianity dr Samo.
4: Permit me to not give an academic presentation and intellectual discourse about Syria. Just having come from Syria two days ago, having been there the last seven, eight years, and there were many people who were surprised that I was staying in Syria for the following reason. I tell my American friends, look, I am a citizen. I have your citizenship. Born in Syria, so I am Syria by birth. But I chose to be an American citizen. And I tell my American friends that I am more American than you are because I chose to be American. But you were involuntarily born American, so you had no choice. <laughs> okay. So, when I speak critically of America, it's more out of love. Because I am proud of America, outside the to a great degree. Okay? But I'm proud of America, I'm supportive of America, I want America to be a great country. Now, what John Duke Anthony just said about the program that we had in Syria, the National Council Program for students, for faculty members, for businessmen, for politicians that lasted for almost a decade program. That program started, and this is the second point, that program started in 1991. And how it started? I was in Syria and I was desperate because as an academic for fifty years. I taught in Michigan um, at the School of International Service, a professor. I was professor at the University of Aleppo, at the University of Kalamun in Syria, of course, also working with the foreign with the for, with the uh, foreign ministry in Syria, Syrian foreign ministry. I negotiated with the Israelis for seven, eight years in that in the in the in the uh, 1990s, after Madrid conference and uh, negotiations, for 50 years, I had a nightmare. I was living through a nightmare for 50 years that my two loved countries, Syria and America, would go to war against each other. And what would I do? Where would I be? And that was a genuine nightmare for me that I hope to God Syria and America never would fight each other. And to do that, I I was coming to Washington, 1991, I came to Washington, and by coincidence, I came to Washington to try to get in touch with some American institutions, to try to develop some kind of relationship between Americans and Syria, to try to normalize relations because my gut feeling was that there is no more there is no war between America and Syria. There is no war. There's no reason to have a war. And the America, during the Cold War, let me tell you this, during the Cold War, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, during the Cold War, we had a lot of Soviets, Russian personnel in Syria. And our government to government with Washington was not very good. The most popular tourists in Syria during the Cold War were the American tourists. They were welcomed, And the Russian tourists were not, uh, Russian personnel were not very welcome. In fact, they did not feel safe while the American tourists, as the worst period in American syrian relations, the American tourists not only were welcome were, were, and, and, and felt very safe and very happy to be there. So, uh, as I, as I told you, we have had two very, very enlightening presentation, academic presentation, actual presentation, representation, and informative. So I'm going to stay away from that and just speak to you from, from the heart, having come from Syria. Now, Dr. Anthony said 80% of the Syrian people live in poverty. Yes. He says that theoretically he has a number, but I lived there. I was in Syria until two days ago. You know, in Syria today, we have a brutal winter for some reason. God has decided to more or less punish us more for some reason. He brought us a brutal winter, cold winter. And in Syria today, there is a serious shortage of electricity, serious shortage of cooking fuel. A serious shortage of heating fuel. And I suffered with that to feel the misery of the people. I had access to diesel to heat my stove and to gas, you know, a jar of gas, the vapor, the gas that heats up the food. I had that. And I had electricity myself because people helped me out. But a lot of people are going through, and they are dying. Some people have actually died in the cold water, freezing to death. Children in Aleppo have died, children freezing to death. And so I came over here in 1981 to meet some people to normalize relations between Syria and America. And by incident, I was invited to a cocktail party to meet some people. I met one of the secretaries, Dr. John Ducantini, and she came to me. I said, are you from Syria? I said, yes. said, why are you Syrians so difficult? Some (laughs) reception, some some welcome. I said, why do you say that? We Syrians are so difficult. Haven't you heard that Syria is the cradle of civilizations? We are very civilized people. What's your problem? She said, I'm from the National Council and we want to take groups to Syria and you're not giving us visas. I said, okay, madam, here's my phone number. Come to Syria. Tell your head, John Duke Anthony, he is he he can go, take his groups, go to the Americans, uh, American Syrian embassy in Washington D.C., and they'll give him a visa in a week. I'm going back in three days to Syria and make arrangements whereby you'll get your visas. And sure enough, a week later they went to the American. I made the connection. There are some calls there, and we got them. We got the embassy here to give them visa. They gave them visa and they go over to Syria. And that was the beginning of something between people to people program, hoping that we'll never get to where we are now. Whereby, where we are now, where is Syria now? Five foreign armies in Syria. That's what the State Department told us just a few minutes ago. But that's not all, five foreign armies in Syria and six other conflicts today in Syria. Syria is ground zero for seven, six, seven earthquakes that are going on. First is the struggle between Jihad and Ishtihad. Keep that in mind, that's very important. Jihad, fighting with a sword. Ishtihad is thinking, is the pen. And there's a conflict between Jihad and Ishtihad, a conflict between Sunni and Shia a conflict between Arabism and Islamism, a conflict between the three traditional historic empires, the, the Ottomans, the Persians, and the Arabs trying, and now the fourth empire, potential empire, Judaic empire. They're all trying to, to grab Syria, to get something out of Syria, to divide Syria, to take advantage of the situation. So Syria is going, and then there is, of course, but they have new Cold War, America, Russia, and then there's Arab-Israeli, which I don't call it Arab-Israeli because there is no Arab-Israeli war, no Arab-Israeli conflict. There is Palestinian-Israeli conflict and Syrian-Israeli conflict because in the what we call the Arab-Israeli conflict actually is Syrian-Palestinian conflict and the Arabs are, are more or less looking, sympathizing, helping the Palestinians, but it's not really their war. It's Syrian war and Israeli and and Israeli and Palestinian war. Okay now. uh, He mentioned something, Dr. Anthony, also John Duke Anthony. He mentioned that I am deputy archbishop of the Arame of the Archbishop whose name is Ibrahim Yohanna Ibrahim, who was kidnapped. The Archbishop of the Aramaic Church in Aleppo was kidnapped five years ago. In fact, two Archbishops, the Greek Orthodox Archbishop in Aleppo and the Syriac Aramaic Archbishop of Aleppo, Metropolitan Aleppo. They were kidnapped five years ago. And I was the Deputy Archbishop of the Syriac Orthodox, Aramaic, who are the original Christians in Christianity. We started, Christianity started in Syria. And Syria is the home of the three monotheistic religions. And the first time the term Christian was used, was used by Saint Paul in Antioch. Antioch, which was part of Syria until 1939, when the French mandatory power ceded it to Turkey. So Syria is the homeland of the three monotheistic religions in which Jesus was born in Nazareth, which is southern Syria. Muhammad developed the empire in the Umayyad Empire in Damascus. Uh, Moses worked, Judaism grew up and developed in in southern Syria. So Syria is going through hell. Now you say, so where are we going? Let me tell you this. Americans have told us. I have heard the Americans say, and Doctor. Goldblatt commented on that that the American are concerned, or Americans have three, four interests. The Kurds fighting terrorism, containing or rolling back Iran, and security for Israel. Fair enough. As as far as fighting terrorism, we keep hearing from Washington that we almost have defeated terrorism. Although Dr. Goldman said, Probably that's not very likely. That's it's not going to be an easy job. But nevertheless, we believe that we let's assume we believe the White House that the, that the fight to uh, fighting terrorism is almost finished. Now, for the Syrians, I'm reflecting the Syrian attitude here. Terrorism, fighting terrorism in Syria. Those tens of thousands, tens of thousands of terrorists, ISIS. Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, ISIS. Those tens of thousands who are foreigners, Europeans and Americans and Africans and Pakistani Muslims from Asia, they are in Syria. Who brought them to Syria so that Americans would fight them? Just think about that. How did they come to Syria? Obviously, the Syrian government did not let them come at the the Syrian government being able to control its border. They would not have permit them to come. But our neighbors, whether it's Turkey, whether it's Israel, whether it's Jordan, uh, who I'm sure ha- had a major role in having ISIS in Syria. But anyway, so ISIS is over. That's fine. The second question is the Kurds. By the way, I spoke Kurdish. I speak Kurdish as well as Arabic. I grew up with the Kurds. I am from Mesopotamia. I am from the north, northeast Syria. I'm from Hasake province, where the Kurds are located. And I was born there, I grew up there, and I, I sympathize. I, I sympathize and really love the Kurds. I like them. I speak their language. I understand them. And the Kurds have suffered a lot. Unfortunately, the Kurds, the Kurds, are surrounded by three empires that don't wish them well, by the Turks in the north, the uh, uh, Iraq and Iranians in the east and the Arabs in Iraq and Syria. And there's no way for the Kurds that are going to have what they really want, an entity uh, uh, of their own. It's going to be very difficult. Uh, but uh, they depend on the Americans. And I met with a lot of the Turks and being as American as I am, I used to tell them, don't trust the Americans. That's Washington, D.C. There are no permanent allies on the interests and that's That's a central central rule in Washington, D.C. Only interest, as seen by the leadership. Now, the Kurds, I hear the Americans tell us about feeling bad about the Kurds. What do we do with the Kurds? By the way, let me tell you something. The Kurds are Syrian citizens. They are Syrian citizens. At one time or other, in the past, they were discriminated against. But then there were other minorities discriminated. But now they are Syrian citizens, and they are going to come back to the mold of Syria, to the to the to, to, to Syria, and become I mean resume their citizenship and their loyalty and their rights and responsibilities like any other Syrian and be sold. Now the last two points: that the question of Iran and security of Israel, rolling back Iran and securing Israel. Let me tell you something. When you talk to the series about Washington DC and decisions in Washington, they tell me, look, what are you talking about? Decision is Washington. Decisions in Washington, they'll tell me, are made in Israel and implemented by Washington. And I said, why say that? They say, look, the four top, the four top, foreign policy personnel, in the, in, the, in the Trump administration, are to say it very nicely, sympathetic for Israel. But to say it boldly, they are Zionists, the series will tell you. Kushner, Bolton, Pompeo, the American ambassador to Israel, Friedman, and then the fifth one, the lady who was the former American, American ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Hey, The Syrians tell me, look, these are Zionists in the Trump administration, and they are going to make decisions not in favor of Syria, not to serve Syrian interests, not to bring stability to Syria. But these are people who are going to favor Israeli perspective, Israeli point of view, is right to interest, So we don't expect any, we don't expect any goodwill or good decisions, because the speaker who was here, uh, Eric, spoke about the city part about the vision in Syria, in Syria, speaking about the vision in Syria as if the State Department has a vision not a vision for the Syrian people to live in peace and prosperity and security before the uprising. And before the sleeping, sleeping, sleeper cells in Syria rose 2011, sleeper cells who were planted by the regional powers, international powers, who were waiting for the spot that was provided by Bouazizi from Tunis and, and it burned in Syria and, and it exploded in Syria. I'm sure, look, look, Syria, pre, uh, pre- Syrian regime made a lot of mistakes. There's no question about it. But those mistakes, do they justify the destruction of Syria? Um, they really don't justify it. And so, back question of Iran and Israel. Question of Iran and Israel and, and in Syria will be dealt with according to the White House. A group of sympathetic individuals formulating American foreign policy who are sympathetic to Israel if they are not scientists. And they're going to deal with these two issues according to the views from Israel or the views from Washington. And that's very sad for us in Syria because they not going to self Syria. With regard to Iran, the major theme in Iran is for America. To roll back Iran. No boots or no Iranian boots on the ground in Syria. That's what the Americans are saying. And the question is, why should America decide who can be who can have boots in Syria, who cannot have? Isn't that uh, uh, the responsibility of the Syrian government, of the Syrian uh, government that's responsible for Syria's security? territorial integrity and sovereignty. The Syrian government, whether you consider it legitimate or not, but it's there, it's in power, recognized by many many people. It's a a member in the United Nations. So the Syrian government has the right to decide who can have boots on the ground in Syria, not America, not Russia. So, but Americans have determined that there should not be boots on the ground, the Iranian boots, and they'll be rolled back. that is the problem there is what? Well. problem is there that the, Isra- the Iranians are trying to establish a Shiite crescent in Syria, extending from Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. Shiite crescent. But I see, look, and the Syrians will tell you, but look, there is a Shiite crescent there possibly, but not really. But there is a Zionist crescent in the south. There's a Shiite Crescent in the north, but there's a Zionist crescent in the south. You see, what's the Zionist crescent? The Zionist Crescent in the south, south of Syria. Its origin goes back to the 1980s. And it started with the notion that, and if I were Israeli, if I were Israeli, and let me be the devil's advocate here, I would say this. Israel, we have to have a Zion's present because we Israelis, we live in a swamp surrounded by the jungle that has a lot of beasts are trying to destroy us. And the salvation for us is to have a belt around Israel, a security belt. A belt in which a chastity belt, if I, want, if I may say, so around Israel that will separate Israel from the jungle because the Israelis and we will say as Israelis, Israel will say, we are a villa surrounded by beastly jungle uh, inhabitants and we have to separate ourselves from them through a, a land land belt around us. And that land belt, with, it has to do with three states, that Zionist Crescent Constitute three three legs, three parts: Egypt on the west, Syria on the north, Iraq to the east. If you look at the map and these three states, you see that they actually form a crescent around this. In the 80s, after the peace treaty with 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 with, with Egypt, Camp David, and you know, Begin and and uh, and the uh, Egyptian president who signed the uh, Peace Treaty in 1979. uh, Israelis neutralized the western leg of the crescent. Then came Iraq, and in 2003, the Americans neutralized for the Israelis the eastern leg of the crescent by making uh, Iraq Rendering it more or less a, a dysfunctional, a, a failed state, divided <coughs> to some degree. And then at the time, I remember in 2003, when the Americans were in Iraq, I was between Washington, between Syria and Washington, going back and forth. And I was meeting with Dr. Anthony. And at the time, I was hearing in Washington that in the summer of 2003, that Syria is a right fruit ready to be picked and the idea was that Syrians Americans were coming to, to from Iraq to Syria after they are done with Iraq uh, they will come to Syria but they did not, did not they did not come okay for s- different reasons they did not succeed in what we want to do in Iraq or or they, uh, they were bogged down in there became a swamp or whatever they did not come to Syria and they waited the Israelis waited for the spot the Americans waited for the spot to to dysfunctional Syria to make it a failed state. They waited until the spark came in 2011, and Syria blew up, and is still blowing up, and the people are suffering in Syria, and they are saying, look, look why, why are outside powers, particularly Western powers, particularly America, why are they doing Israeli bidding and destroying Syria, hurting Syria, creating problems for Syria. Leave us alone. In fact, right now, right now, that that sentence or the two, three words that I hear from Syrians throughout is that, please tell America, leave us alone. This is what they are saying. And 50 years ago, they were telling America, please don't leave us alone, please come over here. And by the way, if I had time, I don't have time. I'll tell you some of the stories I heard when I was a kid. 50 years ago, 60 years ago, from my father who never went to school. But he had their story, delicious story about America, how great America is, how pleasant America is, how rich America is. And my father's notion of America was that he, it is at the end of the world. He has no idea of geography. So where's America? He'd say at the end of the world. But it was to him. And to, uh, he reflected the societal views that is a great a great but now it's exactly the opposite. Why we don't need that? I'm done. Thank you very much. Very much. Patrick, uh, can we take questions? Uh, wow, I
0: have sent to me about. Uh, 23 questions. It's <laughs> uh, hard to uh, roll them into one, but let's see. Here. I'll read a few of them. Tony and uh, Dave if you want to comment there. Uh, how will the plan withdrawal from Syria, declared by President Trump, affect the russo Syrian relationship? How can we expect the void left by our uh, departure to be filled? Okay. How will the U.S. bullet affect the Kurdish uh, forces? particularly in regards to the Kurdish territory along the Turkish border. Uh, That was a great one here about Geneva. Uh, How can the Geneva process uh, at its core uh, proceed effectively if it uh, uh, leaves out the uh, Syrian uh, Democratic uh, Forces? Um, Especially also that Assad is now restoring relations with the Arab League members. Some call this a reality that must be accommodated, yet others caution that Syria will remain a hotbed for resistance and instability, uh, and that the refugees will not return so long as he remains. So what is the U.S. policy? Uh, How might one begin to define it? Uh, What are the tools to implement uh, a policy, if not a strategy? Uh, to advance America's interest, or at least not harm or reverse the uh, effective pursuit of American interest. Uh, Tony, Dave, want to take this, and then you'll each have a whack at that. Well, I got,
1: I got four things here, so the question is... Uh, so, I, I won't answer all of them. I'll take a whack at four of them. Um, how will the U.S. withdrawal affect Russia? Well, I, I, I think Russia's Aims in Syria are less than is commonly supposed. I, I, I don't think it really matters if we're there or not because we're not in the part of Syria that Russia cares about. So when there was uh, last June when there was the possibility of Russia, um, when they made a play for the Kanoko uh, refinery, Kanoko fields around Derazur, and uh, with the Wagner group and uh, our forces, who were defending it, uh, called the Russians and said, "Are these your guys?" And said, "No, no, 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 said, no." Because they thought we were in a position of weakness, and then they wound up getting airstrikes, artillery barrage, about 200 dead mercenaries. The Russians said, "Okay, that's fine. We'll focus on this part of the country, and, and the rest of it will fall too." I, I don't know anybody's ever had a hard time. <laughs> um, uh, and will we'll, we'll um, you know, the rest of. The country will fall to us in the fullness of time when the West and the United States just gets tired of fighting here. So I I honestly don't think that you'll see much of an amp up in Russia aside from the ceremonial. They're pretty much, they've got everything they want and everything they want is from Pomena to the ocean. Uh, And there's really, you know, beyond that they just see strategic consumption. Second, how will it affect the Kurds? I have an interesting um, thesis about the Kurds. I, I, I can't prove this yet, but I'll, I'll put the marker out and maybe in five years, you know, we can fight over this. I think that the Syrian withdrawal, the precipitous nature of it, the fact that it was announced by Twitter, I think that it has something to do with the Kurds. And my guess is that the Turks asked President Trump to get the Kurds to withdraw from Manbij and said, we need you, you know, the Kurds should be on the eastern side of the Euphrates River. And that Trump said, yep, yeah, that makes sense sent it down, it went out to the field, and then the Kurdish commanders said uh, we paid for this land with blood, and we're not going to, you know, we are not a bargaining chip, our debt are not a bargaining chip, we're not going to leave. And that, that was reported up
2: through the chain command to the president, who then said, okay, so these um, people who,
1: you know, this, this informal army that we've supported that, you know, sustains with our equipment, with our air power, with our expertise. Is now telling me the limits of U.S. strategy to help them. We're leaving. Um, that you know this our security partner, Tail, was trying to wag the American dog, and that's why you saw the precipitous uh, announcement of the withdrawal from Syria. That's my that's my guess, and uh, I think I think that will happen. I think that it is more probable than not that the Kurds have overplayed their hand in Syria. Um, the Geneva process. I I can't speak to the. Um, cannot speak to the specifics of the process, I'll just point out that democ- or diplomacy is most successful when it is backed up with military force or the um, implicit threat of military force and that any um, leverage that the United States has to determine for a location for negotiations, whether it should be a Geneva process under UN auspices or a Russian-led uh, pro- you know,
2: thing in, in um, uh, Kazakhstan, Yanishtana, uh, uh
1: our ability to do that is on the decline and i don't see it as increasing so I, I just see it negative and then as for the uh refugees uh i regret hearing that question i should have made more refugees i should have had four outcomes and uh the issue i don't think is so much the of possi- the, the, the problem of refugees not returning uh this is very heartless but um you know there are millions of refugees around the world who have spent you know a generation away from their homeland Um, And we've found a way to deal with that. I think the greater concern is another flood of refugees making their way to Europe. And uh, I think that it is, um, when I look at Germany, uh, you know, Frau Merkel uh, two years ago was in an unassailable position, and now she is a wasting asset. And I think that is entirely due to uh, refugees and the political impact on it and her own mishandling of that situation. And I think that there is an awareness in Europe that a suddenly increased flow of refugees has the potential to destabilize what is a very, very uh, tenuous political uh, consensus. And finally, D- David, if we can, uh, yeah, we'll excuse me, because uh, we've cut
0: the clock ticking here, if we can allow Dr. Kortisman to have a crack at this, any of the ones, and then related to them. Uh, what are the core U.S. national interests in Syria? What objectives derive from those interests? How should U.S. goals in Syria be prioritized? What financial, military, and personnel resources are required to implement U.S. objectives in Syria? And what measures or metrics would might be used to gain progress there? And how will an immediate U.S. departure affect the resurgence of ISIS in Syria? And should the, or in the event the U.S. military continues to operate in Syria, uh, what would be the purposes and what uh, authority, and uh, might you estimate for how long there? And
2: lastly, uh, to what extent has the Turkish military been fighting ISIS in
0: Syria? How significant uh, have, has it, have its efforts been? And have they been effective at defeating ISIS or being even contributive to defeating uh, pockets of, of uh, ISIS? what capabilities and intent does the Syrian regime have to pursue the continued and enduring defeat of ISIS in Syria? Uh, Tony, take uh, four or five minutes, and then uh, Dr. Samo, four or five minutes. Take any of them, you can't take all of them, but the
3: ones that you uh, prefer. First, any question about the U.S. role in Syria that does not involve the U.S. role in Gulf in Iraq is the wrong question. If there is a point in keeping a presence in Syria, let me note that the newspaper reporting on levels of manning or personnel is mostly nonsense, and the U.S. has never reported on the actual cost of its presence in Syria and Iraq in a credible form, it becomes very difficult to talk about any aspect of this. Our problem now is we don't know what we're doing in Iraq, which is the primary area for deployment and of strategic interest, and it makes it very difficult to define what leverage we get out of staying inside of Syria. It also is a military issue trying to deal with counter-terrorism. In a country where state terrorism has killed as many people, as any form of non-state terrorism, and where the statistics according to our START database indicate that ISIS was only responsible for about 31% of the terrorist incidents over the last three years. You have many other sources of tension and fighting. So how do you solve this? I think the simple answer is don't ask about Syria try to figure out what our presence should be, at least in Iraq. And you might want to ask what the hell we're doing in the Gulf. Uh, You can't have a strategy focused on one country. In terms of cost, I've already answered that. There is only a rough idea of OCO costs, which do not provide accurate data on any of the wars, and a so-called cost of war report, which is marginally better. Is defined in a way that the cost data are essentially meaningless as a definition of spending. You might ask, why do we, after all these years, not even have a cost of the war, much less a personnel figure? And if you're wondering, I can give you the figures on Afghanistan. People are worried about 14,000 U.S. military, and you've got 24,000 combat. And those 14,000 are permanent change of station and do not include any TDY. So you might want to ask a few questions about both the quality of our media and those aspects. But I think the most serious problem, and I'll go to the Geneva issue and our foreign house. Think for a moment about the economic figures I quoted on Syria. The minimum estimate I've seen out of the IMF or the World Bank or the UN is 10 years to get back to some level of stable economic status in vote The UN figure, which is a guesstimate, is $400 billion. Who in hell would trust anyone in the current Syrian government with $400 billion? Uh, I think it's a little difficult, given what's happening with humanitarian aid, to trust them with a billion. And that's with mostly UN and other presidents. If we can't match some solution to security, where all we get out of staying is leverage, to something that looks beyond Geneva towards some approach to dealing with a civil nation-building issue, unpopular the term is whether it is international or so on, we are talking about essentially a decade of misery and difference. And does anyone here really believe that a peace agreement that is reached today in Syria is going to last even half a decade? Given all of the forces, all of the arms, all of the different movements, there aren't five forces involved. The Iranian forces alone are divided into four points. Nobody could even count the number of factions on the so-called democratic Arab forces in, in Syria. The State Department once had a document talking about a hundred plus. That was the number of factions something like five years ago. Try to figure out how divided the presence is here. So I think that We either need serious work from the World Bank is the only institution I've seen. I certainly would not put USA in the level of competent economic planning. Uh, And we need some approach to international aid on the civil side, or the military dimension doesn't matter. And if we focus on Syria alone without thinking about Iraq, maybe we ought to ask the person who asked the question, what do you think security in this region is really based? On? Mm-hmm. Super, right. uh,
4: Yes, Place. I want to, uh, do I need a microphone? Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. I, I comment on two points. The first one, what, what Dr. Anthony here mentioned in terms of cost. (coughs) The cost, there's a great misconception when you speak about the cost to Syrian reconstruction. The misconception is the $400 billion, more or less, that uh, the estimates, estimate that will cost rebuilding Syria. They are talking only about rebuilding the infrastructure but that's not serious big loss and i have done a lot of work on this i've written about it i've lectured about it that the big loss in syria is not just the infrastructure the infrastructure money can make it up can fix it up the loss in syria is the loss of the four elites four group of elites and elites are the ones who lead countries forward, develop countries forward. It's not the workers, not the peasants, not the farmer. It's the elite. And we have lost the four top elites in Syria. And you cannot recover those elites. You cannot make them, create them by dollars, by billions of dollars. We have lost the professional elites, doctors and dentists and, and, and uh, uh, engineers and, and etc. In Aleppo, 60% of all the medical doctors have left Syria. So we have lost the professional elites. We have lost the academic elites. There are universities in Syria that have shortage of teachers, high schools have shortages of teachers. We have lost the financial elites. You see now in in Cairo, in Egypt that is a lot of big Syrian businessmen with a lot of money and a huge corporation, a huge factories working in Turkey, in Egypt, and in Oman to some, to some degree. Those, those financial elites, they took not only their knowledge, but they took a lot of money with them. And the fourth elite we have lost, and that touches me, is the Christian elite. And the Christians in Syria were elites, were part of the elite, and we have lost them. 30 years ago, percentage of Christians in Syria were 10%. 10, That's 20 years ago. 10 years ago, they were 4 or 5%. Now they are less than 1%. In the home of Christianity, in the home of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was Christian, was Christian, was Syrian. I mean, not Christian, was Syrian. He was born in Nazareth, as I said, southern Syria, southern of greater Syria, southern of historic Syria. So we have lost the Christian elite. And the the kidnapping of two bishops, the kidnapping of two bishops encouraged and magnified the rate of Christians immigrating, not immigrating, escaping, running away from Syria. And there are hardly, right now we are 1% in the home of Christianity, in the home of Jesus Christ, we are only 1% Christians in Syria and on the way down. And that's tragic, right, that's right. okay. Those are fantastic points. Healy that our
0: media uh, doesn't cover, or if it knows them, it uh, doesn't report them. Uh, in a the closing statement, i okay. built a little bit on what uh, Dr. Portisman mentioned uh, several times with regard to Iraq. Uh, As some of you know, I've been privileged to uh, attend every single uh, heads of state and ministerial summit of the Six State Gulf Cooperation Council, Kuwait, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, under the United Arab Emirates, and Oman. One year after the U.S. invasion and occupation of uh, Iraq, a kind of sick joke that was being passed around was that uh, America invaded Iraq and Iran won. Uh, without uh, firing a single shot or dropping one drop of of blood. And uh, people would ask, when in history can one point out where two adversaries where Americans, uh, many uh, love to hate Iranians the most, Uh, a lot of Iranians like to hate Americans the most, where the uh, stronger power of the two gave the weaker power of the two uh, a gift like that. Um, With regard to uh, statements in recent days that the U.S. will use its forces in Iraq to surveil, monitor uh, <laughs> events in Iran and uh, perhaps, if necessary, project forces southward and southwestern back into Syria or elsewhere in the region. Uh, where's the empathy here in terms of the Iraqi acceptance of this, the Iraqi tolerance of this, the Iraq, uh, Iraq, the uh, respectability of this. Uh, just reverse it and say with the United States, the five foreign forces in the United States, one of them said, well, we're gonna be around for a good while and we're gonna monitor Canada, we're gonna monitor Mexico without any deference or reference uh, to the sovereignty, uh, to the political independence, to the territorial integrity of, of the country uh, involved there. Uh, Dr. Samuel mentioned uh, the loss of these elites. Uh, there's a linkage
2: here. Uh, when the United States invaded and occupied Iraq, uh, Iraq's
0: elite uh, fled. Uh, uh, two million fled. Uh, two million additional were uh, domestically displaced people. That's four million out of what Iraq's population then was 24 million. say uh, uh, is one sixth of the population uh, had their loud shattered to smithereens and their dreams trampled upon it, not made hostage and kidnapped there. In American terms, this would be six, something like 35 million Americans uh, rendered uh, uh, refugees and throw in another uh, 25 million as domestically displaced uh, people. One cannot even get one scared around this in terms of what was the consequence of what the United States did to Iraq. Uh, in effect, uh, we killed a country uh, which together with Syria was the cradle of culture, Western culture, cradle of the three monotheistic faiths and thus the epicenter of prayer, the pilgrimage, of faith, and spiritual devotion uh, for, a quarter of humanity. So these are not just any countries as such, hardly banana republics, so to speak. That's 2 million external refugees from Iraq. 1.3 million went where? To Syria. And not one with a visa. And so we're coming down here to blood, to ethnicity, to faith, to family to history, to linkages, to interdependency writ large, uh, which seems to elude at grasp uh, from an uh, intellectual uh, reach. Now Syria took in 1.3 million, uh, Jordan took in eventually 400,000, and the rest, Beirut, Dubai, Kuwait, uh, Saudi Arabia, and elsewhere. Three years after the invasion, the total number of Iraqi refugees the United States allowed into the United States from the actions and results of American actions was 28,000, and these were the ones with bullseyes on their chests and backs, because these were the interrogators for invasion and occupation. These were the collaborators. These were the jeep drivers. Uh, these were the guards, the escorts, etc. Uh, every invading force that doesn't have the language of the country that's being invaded. is dependent upon local collaborators. You don't think we would have local collaborators, let's say if mainland China invaded the United States? For sure we would. Desperate people do desperate things. And
2: people made internally domestically displaced or externally made a refugee
0: uh, still have the obligations to put food on the table, keep clothes on the back and provide shelter for their families. Where will they get it from if they have no one in employment? But there's a job waiting for them as a translator, as a truck driver, jeep driver, uh, expeditor, uh, mediator, facilitator, liaison uh, per, person there. So, what we did in Iraq had its spillover effect to advance and enhance Iran's regional position and power and role and influence,
2: and broke apart Syria quicker. <laughs> a degree then arguably
0: would have occurred had we not done to iraq what we did and so actions have consequences and processes do not always guarantee good results but bad processes usually guarantee bad results and what we did to iraq uh talked to most of those who were there key decision makers If you take the top seven only one had ever set foot in iraq so much of what dr samu uh, mentioned was validated in the sense of whose strategic interests were being enhanced if it were not all american strategic interest enhanced has been much pessimistic uh, downward analytical information and insight Shared here and no less so in terms of knowledge and understanding and no less so in terms of tapping into the education the empathy and the empirical experiences of these uh, resource people and hopefully one result would be that we have the tools for a more critical accurate relevant responsible analysis of the issues of the challenges of the policies of the positions of the actions, of the attitudes of the United States towards Syria. Please join me in thanking the speakers.